Great to see everybody here this morning. Thanks for coming out and joining us here at East Brainer to be a part of the community that we share in. Not only each weekend, but also during the week. But if you are new to our midst today, we are so thankful for you to be able to be a part. And as Travis shared earlier about the importance of the communion that we share within our community, we are blessed that you have come to, to be a part and to join us and to share, to share in that. It's just so good to see you. So many things that have been going on um, over the last uh, couple of weeks uh, so many different things where our community has come uh, together in different ways. I, I know a, a couple of weeks ago there was a, a special uh, hymn singing and focus on prayer and scripture that we had on a Sunday evening. We've had different groups get together to enjoy uh, watching the Super Bowl together. There was a wonderful uh, Ladies' Day event that took place here on our campus uh, yesterday, and I just want to say thank you for those who are part of the, the, the vision of that and then the, the preparation that went into it and then being able to pull everything off. I uh, heard so many good things about that. Thanks so much for, for offering that for our church family. Uh, tonight we'll have our uh, mosaic time together at 6 p.m., uh, a very non-traditional uh, gathering for, for our church fellowship to, to focus in on the ideas uh, of Lent and look at the ideas of, uh, of repentance as we, as we focus our attention ahead towards Easter. And so a lot of different ways to get together. You might not realize it, but, but each weekend we will have now over, uh, usually over 500 um, souls that will gather here at the 9.30 time. There'll be over 100 people who will come at, at 9.30 for a Spanish language worship. And so uh, we see somewhere between 600 and 700 people here uh, each, each weekend just for what goes on here on Sunday mornings. And that doesn't include all the other times of, of gatherings that then we have and the times our groups get together. And uh, so if you are new to our midst, I want you to know that uh, the life of this congregation goes way beyond just what you see taking place here this morning. And we would love for you to, to engage in other things that are taking place, to be encouraged, to be, to be lifted up. And for those who, who call East Brainerd home, I'm thankful for the different ways in which you prioritize saying that I want to be a part of the church body here, whether it is in this time that we're together just like now or or the other times that we're able to, to get together. Not only is it important for you, but your children are watching. Uh, our, our kids usually never rise above the faith level of their parents. Do you realize that? Now, for some of us, that is a, uh, that is a very sobering idea to think that uh, normally each generation never gets to the, the spirituality of the, of the parents who have, who have raised them. And so our kids are watching and they're seeing the priority that we're placing on things just like the gathering here, the, the communion that we share, the, the different times that we get together, whether formally or informally with people who have our soul's best interest at heart. And so let's take that to mind, moms and dads and, and grandmas and grandpas, as we look to see how we are prioritizing. And, and then understand that they're also watching the, the people that we are spending our time with and the things that we're doing together and, and the people that we are then not spending time with. Their eyes are open and they're seeing the way that we are living our lives and they're seeing the way that our faith is being made evident. And they're also seeing the way that we love 
And so over these past few weeks, we have been sharing together during this time, and we have been sharing ways to love differently. Because our children, they, they, they look and they see in the media, they see in our society and culture, they read it in books, they, 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 they hear it in songs, listen to it on podcasts, that they are getting a certain message of what love is supposed to look like. And while there are aspects of the love within our culture that we would look at and say, yes, that is a God-honoring aspect of love, our culture does not put God out in front of love. Our culture does not base its definition of, of love on God as we should. And so what then begins to happen is that over time, children grow into adults and adults grow into the aged among us, and we begin to take on the definitions and the values of love that oftentimes our society and culture hand to us. And then we step back and look and realize, wait a minute, the love and what love does that I have been taught, or what I thought it was, now it looks something totally different from what I, what I see in Scripture. Because Jesus loves differently. God's love is different than just the things that we see demonstrate around us. And so we've been trying to focus in on that. We'll do so again today and, and next week we will, we will do that as well. Travis, who is, who is here guiding our, our thoughts as we share communion together, he'll be sharing the message next week because one that I love reached out to me and said, um, Dad, I'm a senior in college and you've never, you've never been to church with me while I've been at college. And she said, there's a special day that's coming up, and it's called Family Weekend, and I would love for you to come and, and, and to be a part of, of that. And so because the one that I love showed love to me in patience and even forgiveness, I'll be away next week. Tanya and I will be gone along with Micah, and we'll be sharing time with Emily, being able to enjoy communion with her. The story is told about a man who was driving just outside of Memphis. He was out in the country, and he, he looked over to the side, and he saw a couple of young boys who were running after or running away from, and then they fell and were attacked by some wild dogs. And so the man pulled his car over. He jumped out of his car. He ran over. He grabbed the dogs by the nap of the neck, threw them off of the boys. The dogs then began to attack him, and, and he began to fight back, eventually actually having to take the lives of the dogs in order to save his life and the boys' lives. And there was an editor of a local paper who just happened to be driving by, and he also witnessed this event. He got out of his car, hoping to be able to help the man. And when everything was over, he went up and he said, you are a hero. And tomorrow, the headline in my paper is going to read, Memphis man saves boys from wild dogs. The guy says, well, the truth is I'm not from Memphis. The editor of the paper said, oh, that's all right. It will read, Tennessee man saves boys from wild dogs. The guy says, look, I've got to be honest with you. I'm not from Tennessee. I'm, I'm really not from anywhere around here. I'm from Massachusetts. And so the next day, the headline read, Yankee kills family pets. I'm sure a similar thing happened in Boston, and you know there was a there was a similar headline that uh, that went out about some good Southerner, right? 
Look, we all know that prejudice and discrimination can be found in all walks of life. And it's naive for us to think that the church community is immune to this type of inequity. And so this morning, what we're going to do, we're going to look at what Scripture has to say about a major life temptation. Now, I need you to know that this message isn't going to pull any punches because the biblical author that we're going to look at, his name is James. You can find what we're going to be studying in the New Testament near the end. The letter that he wrote actually bears his name. So look and find James in your Bible or on your phone on a special app maybe that you have where you read Scripture. But the biblical writer James is going to speak loudly and clearly how that our faith and love should make a difference. It should make a difference not just in life, but specifically in how we treat others. And then even more, if, if we dig down even deeper, we realize it's not just how we treat others, but it's how we treat the other. Our faith and love should make a difference. Brothers and sisters, says this in James chapter 2. And remember, he's writing this to Christians. He's not just sending out some general letter that he hopes that someone might happen upon one day and read. He is intentionally writing this to people who say, Jesus is my Savior. I follow Jesus. I live my life after the pattern of Jesus the Messiah. I am a Christian. And so he writes to Christians and says, brothers and sisters... Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. You can't do what he says. The New English Bible calls it snobbery. Snobbery, I, I like that word. I also like snobism. Snobism. Maybe you're guilty sometimes of suffering from snobism. It happens when your nose turns up whenever your eyes look down. Snobism. It's when you think that you are better than perhaps others, or maybe you just think you're better than everyone. The actual Greek word that is used here to talk about favoritism is a word that is compound in nature, and it means to receive and to face. So to receive and to face. So I am going to receive someone face to face, or better yet, it literally means to receive somebody's face. To receive somebody at face value. And then to, to base my judgment, my superficial judgment, on how that individual looks. One translation of this passage says, never treat anybody in a different way according to their outward appearance. Don't give one person, don't give one family, don't give one group preferential treatment at the expense of others. But let's understand, it is a common social disease. And it's one, snobbism, that we oftentimes don't even realize that we are suffering from. It's hiding within us. And oftentimes we think that we have never suffered from the disease at all. And it's others who suffer from this particular ailment. It's others who are snobs. It's others who look down upon. It's others who exclude, but not me. And yet, well, I think that if we really are honest, I think we're going to find out that, 
that maybe we have had or maybe we do have this disease right now. How often have you ever noticed that individuals, maybe even yourself, discriminate and play favorites based on appearance? We judge people by how they look, by how they dress, the shoes that they wear or don't wear, the color of their hair, the number of tattoos, whether they have a lot or whether they don't have enough. We get caught up in the dress to impress mentality, the dress for power, the dress for success, the dress to be cool, the dress to even look spiritual. We are so concerned with the outward appearance of others that we are quick to make a judgment just if someone looks different maybe than what we look. I mean, you know who, depending on the age that you grew up in, who were the preps, who were the jocks, all by oftentimes the way that they dressed. You know individuals who are granolas, right? You know individuals that when you see them that you realize Oh, wow, that is a person of affluence. That must be someone, perhaps, who is struggling in their life, all because of the way that someone just chooses to dress, because of where they shop, because of the, the clothes that they feel good with, because of the way they, they choose to present their appearance. How about discrimination based on ancestry? People are judged according to their race, their nationality, their ethnic background. You understand that it was not too many years ago that many thought it normal, normal to have separate bathrooms, drinking fountains, restaurants, and churches in order to separate individuals of different ancestry. It was normal. And this archaic way of thinking might be in the past, we say, but the bigotry of Jim Crow still shows itself today. Ancestry. Snobbism. How about age? You're either too young or you're too old. You're too young and you want to be taken seriously, but you're too old and you want to show that there's still something left in the tank. Each look at the other with suspicion, all based on the amount of gray hairs you have or the, the hairs that you have at all, all based on the years that you've had in your life and where you've been and, and what you've done. How about achievement? Our society gushes over winners and forgets the losers. Success and status are key words. And even within the church, I'm concerned that Celebrity consciousness is even making its way and has made its way into our Christian thought process where we have our own superstars. Too many church members follow more after authors and preachers and podcasters than they actually do after Jesus Christ. Affluence, the most common distinction. We judge people by their wealth, whether they are rich or poor, we focus on the cars that other people drive, the neighborhoods that they live in, the schools that their children attend, and then we make value judgments on the things that others have, and then we start to compare, what do I have, and what do I not have, and how can I get that, or I would never want to have what they have, or never want to be like them. We become snobs spiritually as we categorize people based on their denominational tribe, their beliefs on various theological issues, 
the Christian college that they attended or did not attend. I can remember when I first got into ministry, do you know the first question that I would be asked by other people who were in ministry? I wasn't asked about my family, wasn't asked where I came from, wasn't even asked really about what church I was preaching at. When other people in ministry found out that, oh, here's this young guy who is a preacher, the first question that I'd be asked, where did you go to school? Where'd you go to school? What's your pedigree? What's that spiritual background? Of course, I would say I went to, I went to um, God's school in Auburn and had a great, had a great biblical influence there. It was, it was wonderful. And people, people would laugh and go, oh, yeah, but really, where'd you go to school? We look down on people because of the way that they worship, the way that they serve, the way in which they go about offering their prayers. Step out of the orthodox way of thinking, voice a differing view on a long-held tradition, and just watch the response that oftentimes you get and things that are then said about you. And what about sin? Have you ever noticed that there are some sins that Christians are comfortable allowing more than others? We frown on the so-called sins of the flesh, as absolutely we should. But then we tolerate gossip and divisiveness and greed as if, well, that's all right because you know what? Well, those are my sins. <laughs> and because those are my sins, those aren't really that big of sins. But other sins that are your sins... And how about how we look down on gender? Are there certain jobs and roles or positions of influence and leadership that you feel are meant exclusively for a man or a woman? Think about the way that we describe different roles. We have stay-at-home dads. And we have working moms. Why do we have to define those in the way that they are? Because some are predisposed to believing that a, a glass ceiling cannot, perhaps, and should not be broken. So appearance and ancestry and age and achievement, affluence, spirituality, sin, gender, it's so easy to play favorites based on just those categories, not to mention all the other ways in which we are taught, in which we are shown that we need to divide individuals and categorize others. And so James tackles the issue of favoritism using an illustration that he was going to focus on about affluence. Here's what he said in chapter 2 and verse 1. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry. They're wearing the Jordans. They're the ones that are coming in, and, and they look fine, he says. And another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, will you just go stand over there or else sit on the floor? Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives. He says, when you start giving the best seats within your, your meeting house, within your 
home, when you start giving the best seats within your social group to those that you think are going to benefit you, to those that seem like they haven't made, to those in society that others look to and bow down before, but then you look at those who they wear different things, they eat different places, they don't talk like you, they don't look like you, and he says when then you don't put forth the same effort to get to know them, to introduce yourself to them when they walk into the lobby, when you're not the one asking them to go and get a meal with you, when you're the one that is more concerned with the person that looks like they've made it than the person that looks like that they need a makeover. He says it just shows that your judgments are guided by evil motives. And James is going to go on to say that there are three big problems with this. There are three big problems to favoritism and playing favorites. He says first it's unchristian. Favoritism is flat out unchristian. And if you want to be like Jesus, you cannot play favorites. He says again, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Faith and favoritism are incompatible in the kingdom of God. The word favoritism is used actually only four times in our Bibles. And every time, every other time, the reference fact is used it's used to, in fact, say that God does not play favorites. That's right. When you look up the wording and you realize, wow, all the other times I find it in Scripture is to tell me God doesn't play favorites. Why are you? Jesus treated everyone with dignity. There is discrimination everywhere in the world. But there should be one place one place where you are welcome, no matter your name, no matter your background, and that place is with God's people. And no matter how well we feel that we have done and talk about we have come such a long way, let us not pat our back, pat ourselves on the backs to such an extent that we forget how far we still have to go. So that the community of God is known as a place where we do not receive people at face value, but instead we receive people at soul value. And we realize that every soul is valuable to God. And so because of that, every soul is, about, is valuable to me. And it's valuable to you. So it's unchristian. James will also say that favoritism is just unreasonable. It's unreasonable. It makes no sense. In verses 5 and 7 of chapter 2, he says it's just illogical. It doesn't make sense, he says, because those who are monetarily poor can still be rich in the things that matter. He says, yeah, the poor in this world, they can still be rich in God. Don't think that they don't have a role within the kingdom. Don't think they can't add value to your kingdom experience. And then he says, look, the rich could care less about you. Why are you worrying about catering to them? Because the you're actually being exploited by them. He says the rich are the ones that are carrying the Christians to court. In New Testament times, it was the Roman nobility who were feeding the Christians to the lions and cheering about it. It was the upper crust that were persecuting the Christians. It was those with money who were judging the Christians, who were insulting the Christians. Christianity on a whole in its beginning was a poor man's and poor woman's religion. And James says, why are you worried about impressing the people who have more than you? Don't show favoritism. It's unchristian. It's not, it's not in keeping with who Jesus was, and it makes no sense. 
for you to fawn all over the people who have something that you don't because they really don't care about you. They don't have your soul's best interest at heart. But then he gives the primary reason in verse 8. He says, favoritism is unchristian. It is unreasonable. And then he says in verse 8, favoritism is unloving. He says, it's unloving. He said, and that's why you shouldn't do it. Because as believers in Jesus, you need to have a different type of love. You don't just love those that can do something for you. You don't just love those that can, if you scratch their back, they're going to scratch yours. He says in verse 8, if you really keep the royal law that's found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, he quotes it. He says, you have done well. He says, if this is what you keep, if this is how you live, the idea that you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, he said, then this is the right thing for you to do. The Apostle Paul, uh, in his writings, he told a group of Christians that the law of God could be summed up by saying, in one sentence, love your neighbor as yourself. Love different. But if I play favorites, if I play favorites, I am being unloving. The Bible says that how we relate to other people actually shows how much we love God. And so in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20, it says, If someone says that I love God, but I hate a Christian brother or sister, well, that person is a liar. For if we don't love the people that we can see, he says, how can we love God whom we cannot see? The way in which you and I show that we truly love God is the different way in which we show love for one another. Those who are brothers and sisters to us because we share the same faith, but also those who are outside the body of Christ, who are totally different in their values, in their pursuits in life, in the choices that they have made. But we show that we are God's children by the way in which we love his children. And if we don't, if we play favorites, and if we decide that I am going to, to help this group, but not this one, that I'm going to offer care for this person, but not this one, that I'm going to pray here, but I'm not going to pray there, that I'm going to spend time with this group, but I'm not going to spend time over here with this group, then James says, you're unloving. You're not loving different the way that you should. You're being unreasonable. You're being unchristian. And you're being unloving whenever you're a snob, whenever you play favorites. So, how then can we love different and treat one another better? I'm going to key in on some things that, that, that we have talked about in different ways in the past. But, but one thing that, is, that is, I've come to understand recently that if you don't come out and, and say it, I guess, very clearly, sometimes it can just be, it can just be missed. I, I heard, I heard at, at a conference that our staff was a part of just about a week and a half ago, a comment that's really resonated with me. I shared it with a group of people who are here on, our, on Wednesday night in a class that I'm doing called um, Think Different. And, and it's really been something that I have been thinking about. And, and the, the quote, the comment was this. It was said that every person that walks through the door of, of your church, every person that walks on to the campus uh, of your church, 
wherever your church gathers. Every person that walks through the door has a vision of what they believe your church should be. Now think about that for a minute. Because the more you think about it, the more you realize it was true because you came in with your own vision of what you felt like church should be about. You walked in and you came into our lobby with a certain anticipation of what you expected and how you wanted to be encouraged or, or how you wanted to be uplifted and, and what you thought was going to happen here. Maybe your expectation of church is just what goes on within this room during this particular hour and there's a certain way that you like it to be done and like to see things. Maybe that you have a certain expectation of, of church with what goes on outside of this hour and how the church should act and how the church should engage. And you, you have your own definition. Everybody that comes in has their own definition. And it was said that all the little definitions or all the other definitions that come into your lobby will always compete with the vision that perhaps your church needs to have or thinks that it should have as a whole. And so there are things that I've said through the years as minister here that I had hoped would allow us to form a vision of who it is that we are going to be and, and what we are going to, you know, to be about. But I wanted to be able, within the context of loving different here, just to, to say a few things, just to make sure it's absolutely crystal clear on the vision that the leadership here, here has for this church body. And so as you walk in and think, this is what I anticipate or I expect as a ch for a church that, that you'll understand if maybe you see something different maybe than what you expect and why. And I think it goes to how we can love different and treat one another better. The vision here that I truly believe God has for his people is that we will accept everyone. You want to love different? Then accept everyone. Have you ever been in a church of spiritual snobs? Have you? Do you know why people have a hard time accepting others spiritually? It's because we oftentimes confuse acceptance with approval. And some church people are so afraid of being seen approving of something that is not socially or scripturally acceptable. And so because of that, because I don't want to be seen as approving of something that, that God maybe doesn't approve of, I am therefore not going to be accepting of an individual. You can accept somebody without approving of his or her lifestyle, his or her choices, his or her sin that may be very obvious or not. She may be doing something totally contrary to the word of God, but you can accept her as a person of great value to God without approving of the sin that she may or may not be involved in. After all, isn't that how God has treated you? Isn't that how God has treated you? And that's why I believe the Apostle Paul would write to Christians and say, accept one another just as Christ has accepted you. God didn't look at, at this group over here that's on my left and say, you know what? Your sins are not as bad as this group that's over here on my right. They're not, but, but that's not how God looked at you, okay? But your sins aren't as bad as these people because this is where the real sinful people sit over here. God didn't look at you that way. 
God didn't look and say, okay, all of you folks sitting in the back, man, you have done such a great job, great job in your life of keeping yourself pure, of keeping Jesus first, that you know what? I am going to give you grace even though you really don't need it. But you people up here in the front, well, you're going to be bathed with grace because there is no hope for you without it. That's not how God treated us. That's not how God treated anyone in this room, anybody that is listening to us right now. It's not how he treated those who came before us or those who will come after us. God accepted us in the midst of our sinfulness. Covered in it. Swimming in it. Bathing in it. And yet he accepted us even though it broke his heart, the way in which we were living and thumbing our nose at him. Friends, at your job or school, there are individuals whose beliefs and actions you do not agree with or condone. I'm sure of it. But can you still come to see them as a unique creation of God with a soul of infinite value and work and stop playing favorites saying, you know what, the Christian folks are better. Or my style of Christian folks are better. Will you stop judging them against your life and your morality and begin seeing them and yourself as daily in need of God's grace and mercy? Because look, if God doesn't show up for me, then I have no hope. And if God doesn't show up for you, you have no hope. And so at East Brainerd, here within this church body, we are trying to cultivate an attitude of acceptance. The church is a hospital for sinners, as some say, not a hotel for saints. And if you're perfect, you don't really belong here. Because this is the church for people who don't have it all together. It doesn't matter where you've been, it matters where you are now. And God accepts you as you are, but he doesn't expect you to stay that way. He wants you to look more and more like Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives, remaking and recrafting us into the image of Jesus Christ. And so there are members of our church family that struggle with issues related to addiction and sexuality and greed and gossip. And we have members who drive clunkers, and we have members who drive hummers. We have individuals in our midst who cut their teeth on Church of Christ pews. And we have individuals who are baptized at Baptist revivals. We have friends and family here who are still searching, still trying to come to terms with who Jesus is and, and what following him daily in life actually means. In the essentials, we strive to have unity. Jesus is Lord. The Bible is God's word. Salvation is by grace through faith, celebrated as we are baptized into Christ for the remission of our sins. In the non-essentials, we have liberty. And in all things, we strive to love different. But to do that, acceptance is the key. So we strive to accept everyone. And we also strive to appreciate everyone. This goes a little bit further than acceptance. Paul would tell the Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of us should look 
Not only to the interest of others, or not only to our own interests, but also to the interest of others, he says. We appreciate everybody. We find something in one another that we can like, not just accept, and then we tell them so. We tell them. We send them the note. We, we, we fire off the text. We, we spot them out in the lobby. We stop them when we are at the ball field or in the gym. And we let them know how glad we are they're in our life. Now, with some people, this might require a little creativity. You may have to look a little while to find something that you like. Maybe you just need to value them for their uniqueness, as we've talked about in previous messages. Like Baskin-Robbins, 31 flavors. I mean, what if everybody was vanilla? What if everybody was vanilla and there was no rocky road? We need some rocky roads in the world, right? We need some of that. What a boring church we would be if everybody was the same. We need to celebrate the uniqueness and the giftedness of every individual, of every child of God. And then we need to affirm everyone, to give everyone a lift whenever it is that we can. Paul told the followers of Jesus, encourage one another, build one another up in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 11. When people stumble, we don't criticize, we empathize, and we raise up. Be an encourager. Don't be a complainer. Don't be a condemner. Don't be a critical person, always looking for the things that are wrong. Everyone here contributes to the atmosphere of this church body, either negatively or positively. Ask yourself this question. Would people come back to this church? Do people want to be a part of this body because of the way that I love different? Because of me. Are you a greeter? Are you a smiler? Are you a hugger? Are you an acceptor? Do you appreciate? Do you affirm? Friends, together we need to recommit to the expectation that this church will receive people unconditionally in order to be able to share the message of Jesus. We will not expect people to act like believers until they are believers. We will not classify sins and say, well, one sin, well, that's worse than another. But instead, we're going to go about the effort of restoring sinners. And that we will be known throughout this community as a place where black and white and brown and biracial are all welcome to be a part of the family of God. We're rich or poor. Doesn't matter. Your, ba- your bank account is unimportant here. Single, married, divorced, widowed, everyone should be able to find a place. Public school, home school, private school, no school. We support each other. We will focus on a person's heart and not their appearance. Love draws outside people in, and I want our church to have a reputation for loving different. That is the vision that we are trying to cast here with it for our church family. A reputation, though, in order for it to be genuine, we cannot and must not play favorites. And I cannot underscore the issue important enough, or the importance of the issue enough. So let me wrap it up this way. James doesn't spare our feelings when he writes the following. This is back in James chapter 2, beginning verse 9. He says, if you favor some people over others, you are committing sin. I told you, we weren't going to pull punches today. You're committing sin. 
You were guilty of breaking the law, he says. For the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. We've all been in the stores before, and we've seen the sign that says, if you break it, you what? Buy it. And they don't care if it's broken in one piece or a thousand pieces, right? They don't care. You can't say, well, it's just missing a handle, right? It was just an arm that fell off. It's okay. If you break it, you buy it. And how many laws do you have to break to be a lawbreaker? I mean, we could ask Seamark. He'll tell you. One. That's all. James is saying that people who think favoritism is a small sin. He's saying people that just think favoritism is a small sin, you need to understand that if you break God's one rule of God, you've broken all the rules of God. You don't need to, cl to classify it. He says, be careful because it's serious business. Verse 11, he says, For the same God who says you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. You say, well, I don't drink, smoke, cuss, or chew, but I hang around with girls and that do, well, what does God care if, if I'm partial to certain kinds of people? He's saying when we do not treat people equally, then we invalidate our attempts at following God's standards. When we get so excited about the fact that we feel like we worship correctly, and yet we play favorites. James says, you understand that you have broken the law, right? That, that you have violated God's expectation. When we say, well, look, I've ordered my life this way, and this is what I've taught my kids, and this is how I've raised them. This is how we live our life. And it's not like the people over here. He says, don't you understand? You're not living up to God's standards. And here's how he closes his thoughts. By encouraging his listeners to speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. He's saying, hey, look, I don't want you to forget the way that God is going to look at you. And here's what we need to remember, friends. When we walk into God's presence, he is not going to receive us at face value. He is not going to look at our bank account. He is not going to ask our language. He is not going to see our sins. Instead, when he sees us, he will see Jesus. And we will be judged accordingly. And then James says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. And here James dips his pen into the well of Jewish theology and he uses a word, mercy, that over 170 times in Hebrew scripture was used to express God's loving kindness toward his covenant people. And remember that the original audience that James wrote to, they were Jews who had accepted Jesus as the Messiah of God. And they understood the concept of covenant mercy. The idea that God promised compassion and loyalty to his people. And so James is asking, do you want God to treat you with compassion? Or do you want God to treat you like you are treating others? And he makes the point, though. He says, look, here's the deal, though. God is going to treat you different. God is going to love you different than the way that you are treating others. And aren't you excited about that? And of course, the response should be, yes, we are thrilled. And so James says, then why, why are you playing favorites? Because God will not do that with you. And so then James has a drop the mic moment. 
He has a drop the mic moment using what I believe to be a play on words by saying that mercy triumphs over judgment. Or literally, the word there that's translated as triumph means looks down upon. James has been writing about how we should not look down on others and how we should not receive someone at face value and how we should not make superficial judgments. And now with what I picture is just a nice little smile on his lips, he basically writes that mercy looks down on judgment. He says mercy is a snob. He says, mercy is a snob. He's saying, look, if you've got to be a snob, then be a mercy snob and offer compassion and love to others instead of judging. You want to love different church? Then accept, appreciate, and affirm everyone. Be a mercy snob and welcome others the way that God has promised to welcome you. Can we give praise to God this morning and sing about the mercy that he has given to us? And as we do, if you need to come before this body asking for prayers, I encourage you to do so, to come and say, you know what, I have. I played favorites. I know I have. And I want to give praise and thanks to God for the fact that he offers forgiveness. Maybe you need to come today because you realize that it's time to be loved differently by God. You'd love to be baptized into Christ. You'd love to have your sins washed away. Whatever your need, whatever your concern, if this message has touched you, would you like to let it be known? Please come as together we stand and as we give praise.